From Vine Pairs New York City headquarters, I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. Listeners, we are missing our third this week, Mr. Teeter. First in our hearts. First in our hearts, yes. Um, but he'll be back soon enough. He is gallivanting around Italy right now, so let's not feel too bad for him. Yeah. You can follow him on Instagram if you want the deets. Yes, you should follow him on Instagram. Probably. You should follow us, Pretty too. Pretty good but... stories there. Yeah, yeah, follow us, too. So, Zach, what have you been drinking lately? So, the th- inspiration for my drinking lately has been me buying a shitload of limes and then being like, <laughs> oh, <laughs> I have to do something with them. I have this problem with citrus, and I think limes in particular, where I buy a lot of them when they're on sale near me, and then I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess you kind of have to, like, use them or lose them. And the good news is that like many of my favorite cocktails incorporate lime juice. So that's not such a like, you know, I'm not suffering from my decision exactly. And I think the two drinks that I've been making the most often are I've made a couple of last words, which I've talked about on the podcast before. Definitely one of my favorite drinks. But really and truly, the thing I've been making a lot of is uh, daiquiris. And Adam Mm -hmm. has, of course, expressed his love for the daiquiri, which I think probably you and I share but a thing that I found in this last week where I probably made you know five or six of them in total is that honestly and truly, I really love the very classic one, two, three formulation. And and I've tried playing around with it because that's the thing you do when you have a shitload of limes. And I, I just to me, it's like it's been this great reminder that the drink is really at its best, at least in my personal opinion, when you don't mess around with it much. And so that's for me, you know, an ounce of or sorry, a half ounce of simple syrup, an ounce of lime juice, and an ounce and a half of white rum. And, and my go-to, um, because I think it's so expressive and really delicious, is a bottle of uh, Clarine. That's a Haitian rum. Um, oh, I don't know that Yeah, one. it's really wild. So Clarine is this kind of fascinating category of rum that uh, I won't go too deep into. I wrote a piece a, a while back about Clarine as a spirit that because of Haiti's relatively distinct history in the Caribbean as an independent nation for several hundred years, its distilling history is much less developed. I mean, there aren't many major distilleries on Haiti, despite it obviously growing a lot of sugarcane. And what's really cool about right. it is instead you have all these very small scale um, you know, distilleries, which are in some cases really just kind of a still and <laughs> not much else. And people working with many different uh, varieties of sugarcane, some of which are only still grown on Haiti because, in again, because it was an independent country and wasn't as sort of heavily industrialized as much of the rest of the Caribbean, you don't have a kind of monoculture. I mean, you have a lot of sugarcane, but you have a lot of different strands and varieties of sugarcane and, right. and that and the sort of uh, topographical and geographical and climactic differences throughout the portion of the island that he occupies um, leads to some different expressions. So that's a lot. Um, Clarine is super interesting. There's not a lot of it available in the States. Um, as far as I know, there's maybe only one importer that's working with it at the moment, um, but they bring in a mm-hmm. few different bottlings. And this is the Vaval, which is um, the extent that I remember of the bottle is the name. Um, but from one of these like small distilleries um, that again, is like essentially just one person from what I gather doing the distilling and so it's very it's sort of somewhere sits somewhere flavor wise between rum agricole being made from um, sugarcane juice as opposed to molasses or anything like that right but it also has a sort of wildness and expressiveness that is reminiscent of mezcal even if it's not 
exactly the same. Obviously, the distillate is totally different, but there is a sensibility to it that reminds me and others too of mezcal. So that's been kind of my my favorite drink of the last week. How about you, Joanna? Wow, that I'm just that sounds really interesting. I'm, I'm really curious to try that now. Um, I feel like Tim Tim might have a lead on some clearing. It's it's available in New York, so maybe uh, yeah, get him to make you. Maybe we can get some. Yeah. Um, yeah. So for me, uh, what I've most notably in the last week had um, a few beers. Evan and I went to a local beer shop called Beer Witch in Brooklyn, and they have a really nice selection kind of organized by type of beer and, and flavor profile. Mm-hmm. Um, and we got a few different uh, like sour beers um, and other types of beers, but a few that we that were really you know, that stood out to me. One was the Ritter Guts Goza. It's called Baron Toter Sour Goza Bock. Okay. Um, and I guess Ritter Guts was like the original Goza. Okay. Um, and I like Gozas for the most part. Um, this one was really delicious and really rich and a little less, you know, like I feel like sours these days, we've talked about this before, are just so acidic. Mm-hmm. And really catch me in the throat, but this was really this was really delicious. We also had um, a Flanders Red Ale from Browery Verhaeg. Um, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I hope I am. Um, we, won't, we won't check Duchesse. your Flemish. It's okay. Yeah, please don't, <laughs> please don't. Um, it called Duchesse de Bourgogne. Okay. That was really delicious. Um, and then one last interesting one that we had was a lemon lime lager Ooh. from Modest Brewing Co. in Minneapolis, which tasted very limey um but didn't have that like sourness that you would get from a a sour beer um yeah so those were really interesting we went there i was looking for something specifically that they had run out of but we got a bunch of different bottles and that was fun to kind of try all those or a, a bunch of them over the weekend we still have a few left um but yeah that's kind of what I've been drinking lately. I have a I have a question that this prompted, which is not related to our yeah. topic, but it just made me curious. So I feel like one thing that has maybe declined in prominence in the drinks world over the last decade or so has been these kinds of beer bottle shops. And not that they are all gone, but I feel like there was a period in time when I was maybe almost two decades ago now, um, when I was first getting into drinking and into beer. And bottle shops were really the only place you could go discover new beers, um, especially if they were imports or from outside of the um, your region or whatever. And there were so so many fewer breweries in Seattle in the first place that, you know, you just didn't have this kind of profusion of, you know, tap rooms and places for people to go drink. And so people who were into beer, yeah, they went to some breweries, but there were, you know, the beer bars and the bottle shops and they were like the hub of the beer community. And mm-hmm. I am going to plead some ignorance here. Listeners, if I'm wrong, please correct me. But I do feel like with some exceptions, a lot of those kinds of places have, if not disappeared, I think have sort of diminished in their centrality to the beer conversation. And I'm not sure why, other than maybe it's just the proliferation of tap rooms that have, you know, kind of soaked up a lot of that business, frankly, because, um, you know, people like going to breweries and drinking beer at them as well and maybe also some like you know kind of amorphous the internet slash social media has also kind of provided another way for people to learn about and discover new beers in a way that they had to go in person before i don't know does that ring true at all i think that yeah i i agree with that i also think that we're 
you know, from my perspective, we're now also able to find a lot of beers and craft beers, at least regionally in, you know, places like Whole Foods Mm -hmm. or Trader Joe's. Um, And I think that's also kind of changed the need to have a bottle shop like like these for discovery, too. Yeah, that's probably true, too. But because I I mean, the Whole Foods in New York um, City especially has a very robust like I mean, they have a really big hard seltzer um, section these days, but I feel like they have a pretty big um, craft beer selection too. Um, that I mean, I, I love going to these shops and Top Hops was one of them on the Lower East Side and uh, they closed up fairly recently, but then reopened in a marketplace. Okay. So to your point, like not going away fully, but kind of downsizing mm. and, and finding um, other places for themselves. Um, I hope they don't go away completely though, because I think they're really cool places to visit yeah and maybe the only way you could have had the experience you guys had you know the other day where you went in looking for one thing and walked away with a bunch of other things and hopefully mostly enjoyed them because that's hard to do in a grocery store yes exactly i mean the staff was extremely helpful too and they were like this is really good oh get this one instead um so that was really nice cool okay so jumping into today's topic you know i i approached zach with this idea earlier Based uh, on a few things that we've kind of noticed recently. I mean, you really approached me with this topic based on a viral video. A very specific (laughs) thing, yes. (laughs) Amazing and horrible all in one. Okay. The video in question is a Yankee fan piercing uh, a (laughs) a a hole through a hot dog to fashion a straw for his beer. So what, that, what I wanted is, to talk about. That is about. technically correct, but I feel like does not do this video justice. <laughs> is there um, a better way to put no, it? No, 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 I think I think <laughs> no one needs a play-by-play. They can go watch it. It's not very long, but it's there's a lot there, there's a lot of subtext that Joanna is flattening necessarily <laughs> to get us into this topic. So what I, want, what I wanted to discuss was, well, should there be a limit to ingenuity in the drink space? But what we want to talk about is you know, this is a very small example of it, and we're we're certainly seeing it, you know, in a realer way um, in just doing what we do here at VinePair and the types of products that come across our desks on a regular basis. But why are we seeing this type of innovation in the drink space right now? Okay, so I have three sort of interrelated theories that I'm going to pitch at you, Joanna, and you tell me if you buy any of them. <laughs> okay. And if you don't, that's okay. So the first one I have is hard seltzer is to blame, or at least is a big factor here. I think now looking back, you know, we all kind of take hard seltzer's presence. As you just mentioned previously, it's very large shelf space share at a place like Whole Foods. We here in, you know, the latter half of 2022, we're like, yeah, of course. But five years ago, that notion was absolutely unfathomable to people i think yeah and when you look at something that is both extremely simple but also was you know not it existed five years ago but as a tiny fraction of what it is now and if you were to tell people then this category which was essentially invented out of nothing is going to become a major category in beverage alcohol in a very short period of time i think that would have been hard to fathom And the success of hard seltzer has led everyone to both get into the hard seltzer category, but also to say, well, what is the thing that can be the next hard seltzer? And so Mm -hmm. that's everything from, you know, 
very, very adjacent products like a lot of, you know, RTDs and canned cocktails that sort of saw the convenience and the packaging of hard seltzer as a big part of its selling point. I think it's also some of the sort of flavor forward, relatively simple kind of appeal of especially the early hard seltzer brands. You know, White Claw was mostly rolling out pretty straightforward flavors. And I think there's, we've talked Mm -hmm. about on the pod before, like there's no denying that part of its appeal and part of its success was that you didn't have, there were no tasting notes, right? You just, you got it from the jump. Right. And I think the third piece is this sort of idea of like, okay, well, can we look at something that's already popular, seltzer, add booze to it and make a thing that will also be popular? And I think this explains, you know, hard soda, God help us, hard milk. I don't know what else is yes. coming down the path. You know, hard <laughs> lemonade and all these. I mean, well, obviously hard lemonade hard existed. Hard coconut but water. Yeah, hard coconut water. Exactly, right? Basically, could you put booze in it? And was it already something that people bought? Sure. And obviously, again, some of these things predate seltzer, but it, but they're, but they're sort of viability in the marketplace seems more plausible now. So, okay, what do you think of this theory, Joanna? I, I was, you know, in thinking about this myself, I thought it immediately to hard seltzer and kind of how that happened. It was an experiment back then. It, people were reluctant to take it seriously, and then it took off in a very real way. So I totally understand people wanting to replicate that in their own way with something else. And I do think we, you know, we've seen it with, you know, hard kombucha, like maybe to a lesser extent, but... We've certainly seen that model work in a similar way. For sure. And I think that to elaborate on this really quickly, and then I'll get into my second theory. I also think that there is, it's also like we we hit this point a couple of years ago where it went from relatively small or at least not major companies that were putting out hard seltzers into all of the biggest beverage companies have yeah. one or more, you know, often many different lines of hard seltzers and adjacent things. Then, you know, not only do you have that sort of bandwagoning effect for these brands or for these companies, but then you also have their whole R&D departments that are like, you know, again, well, yeah. let's not get caught flat-footed because they were and are still really playing catch-up to, you know, White Claw to Truly. And... I think that's also what drives, you know, like I think I'm pretty sure it's a vine pair contributor, Dave Infante, who's talked about this before that there's a sort of cycle of innovation and stagnation in beverage alcohol. And like the, at the biggest companies where they, they kind of by their very nature tend to be enter periods of homeostasis where they don't really do much differently. Cause they're just kind of mm-hmm. making the money and then something changes and that change could be a competitor. It could be a new product. It could be a, you know, changes in the global, you know, economic landscape, whatever happens, a pandemic, say, and mm-hmm. and suddenly they they enter this flurry of development and uh, new products and all that. And then they kind of, again, settle down. And I think we just have been living through this sort of period of hyperactivity at that level of the market as well. That's, again, driven not just some of these specific products, but also, again, you know, if you're someone who's an entrepreneur type, you're looking to ca- might be looking to catch the eye of some of these big companies. So you're going to start a brand with the goal of selling it. Again, something we've talked about on the podcast before. And so I think that you, we just have sort of been living through this period over the last couple of years where that has really been going on. And also with those bigger companies too, it's like figuring out 
when exactly that moment is to mm-hmm. put resources behind that kind of R&D. I think we were talking about it in the context of like the rum and coke or, you know, a canned yeah. soda, alcohol. Okay. So here's theory number two. It's all social media's fault. Okay. And so to me, this is partly connected to hard seltzer, but what it's really connected to is I think one of these fascinating trends that we've seen throughout the drinks world, and it it has a lot of different sort of tentacles as these things tend to, but it's really been the, the role of Instagram and TikTok in particular, I think, at, at sort of driving drinks culture. And on the Instagram side, I think we've talked a lot about it, about how, you know, cocktail bars are designing their drinks to look good on Instagram and less perhaps concerned about how they taste or, you know, certainly the decor to the bar itself. There are these spaces that have been created that are essentially designed for you to post on Instagram and like, who cares what else is going on? They look cool in that format. And I think more than anything on TikTok, you're seeing this whole, um, Second, it feels like a second wave. I'm not really active on TikTok, so I'm probably wrong on this. Again, you know, podcastdefinepair.com, tell me I'm a moron. <laughs> but that, you know, whereas the f- sort of initial, some of the initial wave of like cocktails on TikTok in particular was about like pandemic, let's make a drink. You don't know how to make a, I don't know, an old fashioned or you don't know how to make a daiquiri or whatever. I'm going to show you. I, a bartender, are going to show you. Now, right. I think a lot of what you're seeing kind of bubble up are the drinks version of, I don't know what you would call what they're, there's probably a term for them, Joanna, you might know, but there was, there's been this couple years long trend of these like food videos that are essentially horrific to watch. They're like 8 million steps of like the grossest ingredients or the most incongruous ingredients combined Like gummy together. bears and soda. Yeah. You know, it, mm-hmm. they're like, you know, wrapping things in one thing and then baking it. And like, there's just this, I, I, again, there's probably a term for these. I am, terminally too old to know but the, the I, I have started seeing these in the drink space there was one yeah. that crossed my uh you know my feed the other day that was you know basically someone making what they claimed was i guess some kind of skinny margarita where they used a coffee maker and put starbursts in the filter and boiled oh their tequila and it, it, the whole thing was just <laughs> astonishingly horrific and and misguided but again this thing has like you know hundreds of thousands or probably by now millions of views and i think again we're in this space where on tiktok in particular the 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 key to becoming a viral hit is doing weird compelling shit that makes people respond and if they respond negatively that's almost better i think for engagement i mean this is not unique to tiktok of course but i think it's a the the video format sort of necessarily lends itself to people having to do weird shit, right? You just can't go viral anymore making a classic cocktail, I don't think. Like, you know, unless you're already famous, no one really gives a shit about a bartender's, you know, recipe for a a Manhattan. Like, it's just a thing that people can go look up. There's YouTube tutorials. But if you're doing a Manhattan and you're making it, you know, you're shaking it in a bowling ball or something – that's an idea someone could take <laughs> if you want. I don't know. Um, that's going to get attention. And I think that that's yeah. always been sort of true. Gimmickry has always been a part of the bar industry and the drinks industry. But TikTok in particular, you know, brings it into everyone's face all the time. And I think heightens the importance of of gimmickry. I, yeah, I think we've I'm also not big on TikTok myself. But I, I needed think... Adam for this one. I'm sure that's all he's doing on his <laughs> Italian vacation is fucking scrolling TikTok. Yeah. Um, But I think we kind of went through that initial phase of like 
bartender flair doing mm-hmm. really well on TikTok. And then the pandemic hit and it was the basic bartending skills 101 and, and cocktails 101. And now, yeah, to your point, we're at this, you know, gimmickry that um, people just love to watch. Um, but I think so. I agree with the social media idea, but I also think that media and publications are also contribute to this, oh, right? Sure. Because the things that we see on social media that are going viral, we then decide we want to cover them for our own readership. Like, you should know about this hot dog straw. I was going to say, does Vine Pair have a list of the best <laughs> beers to drink through a hot dog coming? <laughs> Not yet. Okay. But, well, but if you see it, you folks, see a... I came up with this idea. <laughs> um, but can't you see some brand, uh, you know, Subray or something uh, launching a special edition collaboration hot dog straw this, you know, next summer or this fall or something for tailgating season. Um, And my goodness, we would probably be the first ones to cover that. Um, So I think I think something like that. But also we talked about that. We've talked about the Dirty Shirley in the past, Mm -hmm. too. And so I think. Our, our, we have to take some responsibility as a publisher um, in why these types of trends proliferate, arguably to the extent that they do. Yeah, but I also think that there's there in there, and I don't want to be too navel gazy here because I think that's kind of a little boring. But I think there there is this very difficult thing to grapple with in this modern landscape of media and social media and in trying to be attuned to the fact that for our listeners for our readers inevitably what they are seeing on tiktok on instagram is very relevant to their life it might not be relevant to their life for long like a lot of the things that are trends i think are come and go very quickly right they're not as long lived as trends that exist in for, for lack of a better way to put it, like the real world, but mm-hmm. they are still relevant. And I think that, you know, there are ways in which, you know, just like the, if for those of you who also are not following Vine Pair on Instagram, like the Vine Pair Instagram feed, you know, is there's a lot of memes and stuff like that. And that's like what Instagram is good for and what, like, I think the Vine Pair Instagram account should really be doing. And it's not like, here are, you know, here's kind of like very serious photos. I mean, there's some of that too, of course, but like the company has multiple platforms and they serve slightly different purposes. And so I think it is, you know, it's like not invalid to say, here's a thing that's big on TikTok because big on TikTok is big to people. Like it's not a, yes. you know, it's not an irrelevant thing. And, and again, I don't know, it's hard to know what of these kinds of viral TikTok videos, what what in there might make its way onto um, drinks list, but I think that, and, or into the sort of more broad drinks culture. But as we talked about not long ago, Empress Jan, I think, is one great example of where, yep. you know, a lot of their success has been driven by the fact that it doesn't just photograph well. In fact, I don't think it, I mean, it photographs fine, but it, but it, it's a colored drink. It, you know, that's no different than most other things that you see on Instagram, but it's really in the video format where you watch the ch- color change that people go, oh shit, I want to buy that. And so, you know, that's obviously a very specific example, but I think it would be, in some sense, irresponsible of us to not be aware of these trends. Now, is someone making margaritas in their coffee maker going to be a thing that, like, you know, <laughs> goes beyond this? Probably not, but you never know. You never know. And I think it it's really up to who 
deems it so, right? Or who makes that makes it so. Um, something else just to mention before you get to your last one in, in the context of this point, you know, Evan and I were discussing the hot dog straw last night and he mentioned that he thinks it was a whole like setup mm. and that it was, it was done. So the person capturing it could have this moment. And while I, I don't think that's necessarily true, this man genuinely seemed to <laughs> <laughs> want his hot dog straw to enjoy his beer. Um, it does, it does make me think of what you said earlier before we started recording about this, you know, throwing anything against the wall and seeing what sticks sure. and, and how we're kind of in that moment right now. Um, you know, what would the margarita through the coffee maker thing as well? Yeah. Okay. So this actually ties perfectly into my last theory, which oh, is good. that the pandemic broke everyone's brain. <laughs> and that basically we are in this weird quasi post COVID landscape. I am not saying this only because it might be an issue in my family at the moment, but like, we are in this weird two and a half years on space where like for a lot of people, life has returned to something like kind of what it was pre pandemic. And that like, you know, people are in offices. Some people are like going on vacations. And again, this is depending on where you live in your own personal risk tolerance and stuff like that. That may have been the case for the last two years or maybe in the case for the last you know, six months, or it may not be the case for you. That's, you know, everyone has a sort of different level of risk tolerance and where they live can have a lot to do with that, etc. But I think that the point I'm making is that these periods of upheaval, as I was describing, you know, with the sort of major beverage companies do tend to be times when because everything is so unsettled, you see many, many, many ideas being thrown out there because no one has a good grasp of what a year from now will look like. Yeah. And we have just been living through this incredibly tumultuous time, not just the pandemic, although that's obviously a huge part of it, but the direct effects of that uh, to the economy, to the specific drinks economy, political instability in this country. You have just a lot going on and you have individual people who are sort of I think really struggling to find equilibrium in a certain way with not, I mean, maybe in a broader sense, I mean, again, not really the purview of this podcast, but even specifically with their relationship to drinking and what they want out of it. And I think this is something we'll be, we talked about on the the Friday episode with high ABV beers. I know this coming Friday's episode will sort of touch on this in a way too. And I think it's going to be a theme that we come back to because it's so pronounced in drinks right now. But people are really unsure of what they want. Do they want drinking to be something they do socially with friends and family and in a you know kind of convivial atmosphere? Is it something that they do at home alone because like they just need a drink to get through the day? Is it are they looking for a drink that is an effective means to intoxication but is like very low calorie otherwise? Are they looking for something that's super flavorful and you know sort of sensuous and like they don't give a shit about whether it's, you know, 400 calories. Like we are in this very topsy turvy period of time. And it does not surprise me that no one can get a handle on what is going to be big next because like, yeah. it's very hard to know what two months from now is going to look like. Yeah. And I think we've also talked about that now more than ever before there is so much choice and mm -hmm. consumer choice and so much available on the market that you can, depending on your mood, get whatever you want in that moment. Um, and it's kind of, it's, it's an overload. Yeah. I think this is really interesting. Just like you said, in the context of the, of the past two and a half years, how we've seen so many new brands launch mm -hmm. in that amount, in that period of time too. 
And we saw it, you know, most predominantly with the canned cocktail space and category, like so many of these brands and these RTD brands seeing the success of others, um, kind of getting companies off of the ground in a, in a very short period of time. Um, and we don't know what will happen with them yeah. in the next couple of years. Exactly. Well, and I think that's the that's the really hard part about operating in this space. It makes me glad to be, you know, reporting on it and not trying to launch a business in it. Do it. Um, yeah. Because facts on the ground change so quickly. And I think, you know, yep. maybe maybe at some point, maybe for like uh, the third anniversary or something, March of next year, we should really take some time and, and look back at just kind of the various stages of of the evolution of what was what seemed most pressing and and vital in the drinks industry throughout this trajectory because it really has changed. I mean, again, you know, we've got the podcast archives. You can go back and listen. I stand by pretty much everything I've said. Um, some of it was maybe <laughs> a little bit more um, <laughs> time limited than I imagined at the time. You know, again, living living through crazy times means you're not always going to you know understand the long view very well. But I don't think I'm I or we are alone in that. But it is really interesting to me to think about how things that seemed so critical in certain ways or things that seemed impossible in other ways now no longer seem important at all or are totally doable. And you think about, you know, to-go cocktails from bars, you think about, you know, um, Zoom wine tastings and like all these various things, right? The various sort of phases of, uh, you know, that this industry went through, has gone through over the last two and a half years and, and continues to go through as we continue to kind of grapple with what the current landscape looks like and what it will look like moving forward. It's it's definitely shaky ground, but there's, you know, possibility in there as well as some, you know, abject terror. Yeah. So let me ask you then, Zach, mm-hmm. should there be a limit to ingenuity in the drink space? So I'm going to crib from biology here. And uh, I am not a biologist, so you know, give I, I uh, you know, but please also if we have some some biologists out there listening, podcastifyimpair dot com, tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> They're going to get a lot of corrections, I'm sure. But basically, I think there is this notion in evolutionary biology that in periods of great um, sort of turmoil, whether that's ecological or climactic or whatever species with a lot of diversity, genetic diversity within them tend to survive better than oh, survival of the fittest. Well, but especially when the the fittest part is really you got to be very specialized. Um, and I think that that is what we are seeing. So in some sense, while there are some very cringeworthy elements to this level of um, ingenuity, I guess, if you can call using your hot dog as a straw ingenuity, I guess it is. I mean, <laughs> I think they also just gave you a straw, but whatever. As much as some of it might be cringeworthy or unappealing to you or I or to, to most, I actually think that the vitality of the drinks industry is better maintained when there is an attitude of let's try shit and see what happens yeah. than in an, in a, with an attitude of like, we already know how to do this. Because it's those kinds of industries that are brittle and when subject to strain, especially on unexpected lines of stress. Now we're getting into like, you know, engineering. Sorry, I'm all over the place today that's when they break apart. And so I think that there is actually real value in people continuing to uh, innovate and try different stuff. And even if it seems weird or ill-fated, um, and much of it probably is, there's benefit in there because you never know what's going to be the category, the product, the approach, whatever that moves things forward. What about you, Joanna? Yeah, I'm, I mean, I agree. I think that 
like you said, even if we don't go for things ourselves or if they ultimately don't stick or move forward, it's what inspires interest. And like you said, there are some categories that are far behind. We, we obviously work on them ourselves and it's hard to watch them struggle with reaching a new generation because of that lack of innovation or resistance to change. Um, so I think overall, we should have more hot dog straws. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> I think this was a nice chat, Zach. Um, yeah. And I look forward to chatting with you on Friday. And then, of course, Adam's eventual return. But tune in then, folks, and we'll talk to you Friday. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So, the Vine Pair Podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington, in Zach Chabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered, and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.